0: Greetings, everyone. This is a Sound Health Radio Show with Richard Talk-To-Me-Guy. And Sherry is, of course, off working at the soundhealthportal.com. Always amazing. I was recently attended one of her online demonstrations. And it's just amazing. A new chart. I was like, where did that come from? That's a new chart that expresses things going on in your vocal print, looking at states of imbalance. And I would suggest if you're interested in having a resource, an amazing resource online. You can go to soundhealthportal.com. And if you scroll down a bit, you'll see the current campaigns and campaigns where you can sign up for a free account and choose your campaign and then the system will walk you through doing two 45 second recordings. And some of the examples of campaigns, a campaign is one where you can do it for free currently. And some of the current campaigns are, for example, corona conflict stem cells and neuroplasticity not too long ago I was on a demo with Sherry said if I wanted to come in I, she'd run my liver profile I live in an agricultural area I'm certain we'll be talking about that with Stephanie Seneff Ag, tricky I just thought it would be a good idea to review and it's really easy to have your vocal print run Let's, let me go back to campaigns you sign up for a campaign you do the two 45-second recordings, which the system will walk you through doing right from your computer. You choose the campaign that you want your vocal print run on. Vocal print just means the recording of your voice. It's run through the software, and when you submit it, within two to the most I've ever waited is about 10 hours, you'll get the results with a lot of information. I recommend sitting, it, sitting down with a cup of tea and reviewing the information. And then if you have a practitioner who's open to it, you could take it to them and review it with them and say, well, we might work on this, or maybe you have a subluxation, or, you know, it depends upon your practitioner. And it's really an amazing resource. And if you want to see more about the Sound Health Portal, I recommend going to Sound Health Options, scrolling to Classes, and then scroll down to Portal Presentations. And there you can choose any number of the recent or older demonstrations where Sherry's done a vocal workup online. And again, the vocal workup is taking a vocal recording, running it through the software, looking at the charts. It's really quite amazing. When you want to hear a replay of this show, you can go to soundhealthoptions.com, click on the radio tab, and go to Sound Health Radio. And at the top of that page will be the flyer for this show today and a link back to the show notes. And if you're there, you could, if you see the link now, you can go there and you can join chat where people are typing and texting questions and I'm putting in links and all sorts of stuff. And, or if you want to listen to the show again or share it with friends, if you click on, let's say at the top, now we have icons for Stitcher or pocket casts. You can click on either of those. Let's say you click on Stitcher. It'll open a page with this show at the top, usually within about 20 to minutes to an hour at the most the show will appear and you'll be able to listen to it again and or there are on all apps, whether it be an iOS, which is called podcasts or Google the, the default app is called Google podcasts In most of the podcast apps you'll see either dots up in the upper right hand corner or three lines called the hamburger and you can click on those and there'll be a share option there and you'll be able to share the, uh, the show directly from that page. And this is one of those shows with Stephanie Sineff, who I've talked to numerous times, always an adventure, amazing, amazing stuff. And you'll just be able to share it and, or listen to it again. And this is the kind of show we're going to talk about a lot of things in a lot of arenas. And there's a lot of information that you're going to re- go back and say, what did they, what did she say? What's that? It's a lot. With that, Dr. Stephanie Seneff is a senior research scientist at MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She has a BS degree from MIT in biology and a PhD from MIT in electrical engineering and computer science. Her recent interests have focused on the role of toxic chemicals and micronutrient deficiencies in health and disease, with a special emphasis on the pervasive herbicide Roundup and the mineral sulfur. She's authored over 30 peer-reviewed journal papers of the past few years on these topics. Recently, she's been concentrating mainly on the relationship between nutrition and health. Since 2011, she has published over two dozen papers in various medical and health-related journals on topics such as modern-day diseases, that is, Alzheimer, autism, cardiovascular disease. Analysis and Search of Databases of Drug Side Effects Using NLP Techniques and the Impact of Nutritional Deficiencies and Environmental Toxins on Human Health. Dr. Sanef joins us to talk about Here's possible effects of the here. RNA vaccine in <laughs> human DNA. Welcome, Stephanie. Pardon me, I unmuted the wrong mic. There you are, Stephanie.
1: Oh, hi. <laughs>
0: Sorry. <laughs> I'm
1: glad to know that because you got some interesting uh, entertainment there for a moment. Yeah, but, well, I know. Well, I
0: just, it confused me for a minute. Here. Wait, that's not the right channel. <laughs> so good morning.
1: Good morning. How are um,
0: you? I'm good. Well, as we discussed, yes, I'm good. I'll stick with that. Mm-hmm. Because of where we're going to go, would you please give us a clear picture of the interaction of our RNA with our DNA because I know where we're going from there
1: right well you know it's very interesting because life is so fascinating and and we hopefully most people have learned about the basics of life where there's the DNA code in the in the nucleus of the cell and then the DNA gets transferred and translated into RNA which is a minimal change and then the RNA is the, work, is the one that then allows it to be copied into protein, and that's where the code actually gets used. So the, the RNA has the same code as the DNA, but a slightly different um, molecule. And then the RNA, um, the machinery, can look at the code. It's a four-letter code, looking at it three letters at a time and reading off each, each three-letter sequence and producing the an amino acid. So the RNA is the, is the uh, one that it gets translated from into the protein. And then the proteins are are the workhorses of the body. They do everything. You know, really, they're they're so basic to biology. So the uh, and so there's all the information to to do all the tasks is in that RNA, which is also in the DNA. And the idea is that everything goes from DNA to RNA to protein. But what we're finding out is that's not true. And lately, there's been some amazing research that's shown that the RNA can go back to DNA. And actually, it's been known for quite some time. I, even when I was in college, actually, I spent one year. Um, in David Baltimore's lab, he later won the Nobel Prize for the work that was going on there, and that work was involving retroviruses. And so you probably know Judy Mikovits; She's been mm-hmm. really outspoken about the uh, the danger of this uh, vaccine that we're being subjected to, she thinks. And um, the, the problem – the, 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 the um, claim is that the RNA is very safe because it's not DNA, and therefore it can't possibly – um, you know, get back into our genome. But you have to be very careful with that because there is, um, for example, HIV, you know, uh, AIDS, that virus is a retrovirus. And, and that's Judy Mikovits's expertise is in retroviruses. And retroviruses, retro is reversed. And what that means is they have the skill to convert RNA back into DNA. And even that DNA can become integrated in our own genome. And in fact, some... of our genome is known to be derived from retroviruses. And in fact, I think viruses are actually the agents, the primary agents of evolution. I think that almost has to be true. And I think we're starting to realize that that's the case. We think of viruses as bad bugs that are going to cause trouble. There are so many viruses out there, and most of them are benign and, in fact, essential to life, I think. They're sort of the there's a mechanism by which all life forms are able to evolve and especially to evolve rapidly under conditions of stress and and certainly we are under conditions of stress right now with all the chemicals that we're exposed to and i think that's a reason why we've had so much trouble recently with recent you know these emergence of these new viruses that are making people very sick the viruses are actually working very hard to try to figure out how to how to redesign. This is what I believe. You know, Ultimately, they want to redesign how we work so that we can get around the, the damage that is being done to us by these chemicals. It's a very, very challenging task before them. And they can't get it right immediately. They have to play around with different ideas. And in the meantime, they're going to make us sick. And it's just, you know, we have to, through trial and error, eventually reach some place, probably not possible to reach some place where you can be healthy in the environment we're in right now because of all these toxic chemicals that we're exposed to. So the viruses have an enormous task these days because humans have basically spilled all these poisons all over the world. And they're not up to that task. They're trying, but they're, they're failing basically is the way I see it. And so we're, we're facing the consequences of our poisons, which is that we get this virus that's spreading throughout humanity all over the world and causing um serious disease among people who I think it's among the people who have been poisoned more so the ones who are living a healthy life I think they're going to be okay with this virus the ones that are being exposed to poisons are not
0: and how we'll get back to total toxic load in a little bit but first I want to ask about I saw a post that you'd uh, an article or I can't remember right now but an article or research that you had posted on Facebook talking about potential issues of the MRNA and how it could indeed what i this is all my languaging everybody stephanie will make it clear uh could potentially corrupt our uh, rna and Mm -hmm. would you talk about that how what yeah please go ahead no go ahead (laughs)
1: okay what (laughs) all right yeah i i I am absolutely fascinated by this i I love science i love biology especially and uh, i mean i'm like a kid in a candy store these days because this. You discover all these new things that you weren't didn't even know to look for before, but once you say, oh my God, what is this vaccine and what is it doing exactly, and then, oh, what are the implications of that? And when you start asking those questions and looking through the research literature to answer them, you go, oh my God. I mean, you really have to go, oh my God, I think, because what I realized, I knew about retroviruses like HIV, and I knew they could convert RNA into DNA, and I was suspecting that that DNA could end up in our genome over time, eventually. Um, what I didn't know until recently is that our own cells also make, uh, can also convert RNA into DNA. They have the same tool, and they it's usually quiet. I mean, most cells don't express it. That means they don't really produce that protein or that RNA. It's an actually it, it actually is like 10 percent, 20 percent of our genome is devoted to these uh, units called LINE lines, uh, and that stands for long uh, interspersed. Um, nuclear elements long interspersed nuclear elements line and um, They're so fascinating and so there's a line one which is the one that's mostly active in human cells and it's only active it's active particularly during uh, fertilization and especially the, the sperm express it during fertilization, which is so fascinating I found a couple of really interesting articles where they have shown specifically that when you expose sperm to what they call exogenous RNA so what that is is RNA that's not human RNA came from someplace else such as a virus or such as a vaccine like these RNA vaccines which of course at that time didn't exist but you've got external RNA the sperm takes up that RNA the sperm converts it into DNA and it's a circular DNA it puts it inside these little pellets and then at the time of fertilization and is that my impression is basically is all these sperm right trying to get to the egg and they all are able to release these little pellets of RNA that's been converted into DNA, and then they're taken up by the by the fertilized egg. The fertilized egg, egg absorbs all of these little pellets with this code inside them that is uh, for RNA. And then the amazing thing is that that RNA converted to DNA then stays in the embryo. It, it gets propagated into all the cells of the fetus and the infant, and that infant grows up and continues to carry this DNA and able to be able to use this DNA to make that protein that's inside there, that is to say, make the spike protein. So in theory, um, we have all the resources in our bodies to take the vaccine's RNA, convert it into DNA, and then have a, a baby be born that can, for its entire life, make spike protein. And then not only that, but that, that child, when it grows up, can actually pass that information on to the next generation. So it's an epigenetic effect. It hasn't gone into the into the actual nucleus, you know the nuclear DNA of our of our genome, but it's in the cell and it's able to um, to, to produce protein, uh, namely the spike protein, because that's what's in that vaccine. So to have and if you picture an infant then, and the other thing is that when they do that, if that if that fetus is exposed to that in utero, then it it doesn't know that that's foreign. It thinks of it as something that's native. So it doesn't, it doesn't um, react to that spike protein the normal way. It doesn't produce antibodies. And what I think that can mean is that that person who is this child that's uh, inherited this uh, this RNA is going to be able to be a, um, a super carrier of the disease because it will be able to, if it gets infected, it's like spike protein says, oh, yeah, that's native. I don't care about that. I'm not going to even react. I'm not going to make any antibodies. And then the virus be, will be able to thrive and probably not even cause disease because uh, they don't, it's the immune response that's causing all the symptoms. So that child is, is happy with it, with this protein. It looks like it's native and it's fine. And it just goes ahead and, and produces that virus and then becomes a super spreader for its entire life. That is, is possible, I think. And in fact, we have evidence of something like that happening in cattle. And I had remembered reading about this many years ago and I dug it back up again recently. I found an amazing article about this virus that cow- cows get and apparently it's a pretty serious problem among herds of cattle and also other ungulates like sheep and, and even the uh, the elk and the deer the wild animals that are ungulates it's, it's an, an ungulate um it's a virus that infects ungulates, and it's called um bovine uh viral diarrhea virus (BVDV), bovine diarrhea virus and um and that virus it what what this article that I read was just incredible because it talked about these um these calves that were being born with a virus, they'd been exposed to the virus in utero and then they were born with the virus essentially integrated into their own, you know, genetic makeup so that they didn't think it was a foreign thing. And then those calves that had that problem would infect the entire herd. And so and the article talked about the way to control this virus is to identify those calves that have this feature and kill them, you know, prune them from, from that, cull the herd, take away those calves because they're going to infect the rest of the herd and, um, and kill them, uh, was the solution that they were proposing in this article. So that was just absolutely amazing to me because when you think about that happening with that virus, I can't think of a good reason why it wouldn't happen with this vaccine, and that's what's got me really quite concerned.
0: And I want to back up for a minute to Total Toxic Load, so, if a child—let's let, say the mother is carrying a child and the the mother lives in a tropical place and eats organic food as a lifestyle—and the kids are playing in the dirt and have a strong immune system and, and all that, mm-hmm. when the child's born, is it any more resistant to that kind of what I will call pollution, or? is a a strong immune system not any kind of defense to what you're talking about
1: yeah that's a good question a a strong defense uh, a strong innate immune system is essential for being able to resist this virus and i believe that anyone who has a strong innate immune system is not going to get sick with this virus at the most they might get a a cold you know it would be a very minimal disease if if their innate immune system is strong the problem, I believe, is that the chemicals are destroying our innate immune system, particularly I think glyphosate is destroying um, our, cyst, our, our innate immune system. And uh, I actually have a book underway, which is, uh, will be published hopefully in June of this year, t- June 2020, 2021 will come out, um, called Toxic Legacy, and it's going to be all about glyphosate. I have a whole chapter in there arguing my, my position for why I think glyphosate is going to uh, cause us to be... Um, Un, unable to fight off disease easily to direct those um, those cells that are involved with uh, protecting us from viruses and, and other um, bacteria and whatnot fung, fungi the whole works and the thing is that if you have a strong innate immune system the virus comes into your lungs and, the, and you just wipe it out immediately you don't even give it a chance to reproduce and you don't even have to make antibodies you can clear it all you know the innate immune system can clear it all by itself without even causing um, cytokine storm, which is how you get these symptoms. You know, like it, you, you get local tissue destruction because you've, you've you've turned on the adaptive immune system under the condition where your innate immune system is weak, and so um, and that is under the condition where you've been poisoned by these various chemicals. And so it, it's the adaptive immune system that causes the disease symptoms, and it's also the adaptive immune system that produces the antibodies. The um, and the antibodies can become autoantibodies. This is something I'm very concerned about because the autoantibodies then can attack your own tissues and cause autoimmune disease. And we have had a, a, a you know an increasing load of autoimmune disease over the past at least 20 years. Our, our a number of people suffering from various autoimmune diseases is going up and up. And I think that again is due to the fact that our innate immune system is too weak. And so when we get something, when we're confronted with some kind of a uh, of a foreign um, you know Invasion of something like viruses or, or bacteria or fungi, then we, uh, we can 't fight them off without invoking these antibodies, which makes it much easier to see them then. so the antibodies are kind of putting a, a red light on all the viruses so that the immune cells can find them because the immune cells are essentially blind without the antibodies because they're broken by the um, by the chemicals. This is what I think is going on and so those so actually there was a study on the um, protein. The spike protein is the protein that the RNA codes for in the RNA vaccines. I think I don't know if your audience understands these RNA vaccines, but they are the vaccine is quite amazing. It's, it's a technology that they've been developing for a long time. And I have to say they're very excited about this technology because they believe it's a way that you can introduce um, new information into cells, you know, for example, if someone has uh, um, a defect like a defective protein, because they have a, a genetic mutation. In theory, you could put in the RNA for a good version of that protein. You could, you know, you could use it as a vaccine to you know, let their body have a new version of that protein that's healthy, and, and that sounds very appealing, you know, to be able to replace their broken protein with a working version of it. And so, and they also are envisioning this technology to be very useful for fighting cancer, where you can actually have. RNA in there that's targeted towards cancer cells that will take it up and then turn it into something that will actually cause the cancer cell to die. So they're very, very excited about this technology. And I think they're probably really delighted at the way things have turned out in some weird way, because this uh, this pandemic gives them the opportunity to kind of jump into this space in a big hurry. And I just find it extraordinary that they think it's okay to just toss this vaccine into the entire world population and not expect some kind of um, effect that we haven't it had no clue about because it's such new technology and it's so exotic and so far away from anything else we've done before. And to think that there aren't some kind of consequences that we're not aware of that are going to happen is just mind boggling to me to think that it's safe to do this in such on such a grand scale. Um I, I'm very worried about that. I mean we can hope everything's gonna go great and there actually won't be that many people who actually have the exact conditions where, I mean, you could argue that everything will be fine. Maybe a few people will be harmed and it won't be too bad. You know, that's what they're saying, right? I don't, I mean, I'm just very worried. I just think it's way too rushed and uh, extraordinary too that it was done so fast. Uh, Normally vaccines take many more years to develop and to rush through Mm -hmm. a vaccine that's a brand new technology and just put it out there and let the world. Population be the guinea pigs. I, I just I don't even understand how they can think that that's okay. You know.
0: Well, I was going to save this for later, but it's going to make me dive into the 1986 law and yes. ask you about waving your magic wand and making that law go away. Could you talk about the 1986 law?
1: Yes, I mean that that was really the in a way the beginning of the disaster that's been vaccines since then because it, it before, up before, right before 1986, actually, there was a lot of trouble with the DPT shot. That's a shot that had aluminum in it. And uh, it was, a lot of people were getting really bad side effects and people were thinking it was causing autism. It was really, uh, I remember actually my my youngest son was due for his, I, I didn't, uh, I, I vaccinated all my kids, but my youngest son was due for his DPT shot. And um, I had a friend whose, whose son got the DPT shot and ran a very high fever, piercing cry. A week later, he developed seizures, and then he was diagnosed with autism. And, and um, so, when I went for the DPT shot, I said to my doctor, "I won't let him get that shot. I, I don't want you to give him that shot." And the doctor was very uh, compliant. He said, "Oh, oh, that's fine. You know, I, I think it's going to be um, removed from the market anyway very shortly because they're having so much trouble with it." So he didn't give, mm. he didn't put up a fight at all, and my son didn't get it. And then. Um, and then it was a few years later, that was about 1984, probably. So just a couple of years later, we got that law. So the vaccine industry basically said, you know what, we're not going to make these vaccines if we have to cope with all these lawsuits we're going to get. We can't afford that. It won't be worth it for us. We're just going to take them down. And the, and the government's like, no, you can't not have vaccines. And so the government was willing to come in and say, okay, we'll take the, the burden of the, of the lawsuits. We'll do that. That'll be on our head. The, the company gets a get-out-of-jail-free card doesn't have to worry about anything that goes wrong. And once you are in that situation, the company, they, now they can, they can uh, when they do the whole vaccine trials, they're very loosey-goosey about it The way compared to what they would do with a drug trial because with a drug, they're going to get lawsuits, you know, and they've had some nasty problems with some drugs that they didn't check out well enough in, during the process and ended up causing something that unanticipated, and they got a bunch of lawsuits. That's happened with many drugs. Um, that doesn't happen with the vaccine because they, the law protects them from it. And therefore, they don't care if the vaccine is causing something that could cause damage. It's not, it's, it's not going to hurt them financially. And that makes them much more casual about the testing process before they release the vaccine. And then the same thing with this, this vaccine. I think with this emergency, the vaccine has not been approved. This M- mRNA vaccine has not been approved in the general sense of the word. It's only approved for emergency use. And um, and again, the companies are off the hook. You know, if anything goes wrong, it's not their problem. And so this is a field day for them. They're so delighted. They're going to make a ton of money off of this vaccine. All the companies that are able to produce a, a vaccine. They're going to just, uh, you know, be filthy rich basically. Without and one any, of the things
0: uh, Yeah. And, and one of the things about the 86 law made it so that if somebody did want to sue, <clears throat> they go before this board. Yes and the moment you court. go to the board <laughs> vaccine court yeah there's a baseball cap i'd like to wear um yeah and you sign a document that's a non-disclosure document so you might get a settlement and mm-hmm. yet you there's you can't say anything in the world or you lose your money so right, you have no, right. there's no ability for us to know what's going on so it makes the pharmaceutical companies for vaccines completely non-liable
1: completely it's non-responsible
0: so it blows my mind. It just blows I know. my
1: mind. And what amazes me is that the population is content to just uh, let this happen. I mean, people should be very aware of these so many cases of, of parents who had a child perfectly fine. The child got the shot. They had a very bad reaction to the shot. And then they got sick after that, you know, and they never recovered and and very sick. You know, things like autism or even or even in some cases death and um, or, you know, just um nasty stuff. The HPV vaccine is one that I've been very upset about. This one for the girls to protect them from cervical cancer some 40, 50 years later. That's so ridiculous. They have never proven that the vaccine even protects you from cancer. And actually the evidence looks like it may cause you to get cancer because it kills off the, the several strains. It's like over a hundred strains of HPV and the vaccine only matches a few of them. And so once you sort of get rid of those guys then there's other strains that might be more virulent that come into play they get a they get an open space because the other the competition has been cleared out by the vaccine and so you can get cervical cancer from a more a vicious version of that same hpv virus as a consequence of being vaccinated against it. that's what happens happens with the flu too you know we always talk about how the flu shot didn't match well this year you know, because we pick the wrong strains. We're always trying to figure out which strains are strong each year and design the vaccine anew. And then, of course, you've got to get a new vaccine every year because the strains have changed. And we're probably sort of chasing our tail because we're killing off certain species of the of the uh, certain strains of the flu vaccine. We basically suppress those with the vaccine, and then the other strains uh, are there, ready to go. And so uh, you never. You can't win that game, you know, you, you can't win it. And it's, I think it's it's kind of crazy with the flu where they're so, they're telling you every time you turn around, go get your flu shot, you know. And we've got more flu. I think we've got, we're not making any headway against the flu with all these shots. We used to have only the old people got the shot. Now you've got even the pregnant women are getting the flu shot, never mind that there's, you know, a, um, mer- mercury in it, right? A lot of the flu shots have mercury in them, no problem for the baby. I mean, that's just insane.
0: I want to jump back for a minute and talk about something like polio. That's sort of the poster child for "look, we eliminated polio by vaccinations." Right. And yet, the sort of another side of that is: this year, last year, interviewed uh, Dr. William Gifford,
1: uh-huh.
0: who's an MD who's ninety-eight, and he uh-huh. had polio. And he had polio as a child in, uh-huh. in his late in his late teens. And I can't remember exactly how he was brought to this doctor but there was a doctor doctor Klenner who did research in in vitamin C and he was clearing young people of polio by giving them a hundred thousand units of uh, grams of vitamin C IV on a repetitive basis for a period of time hmm and it it I have so many bad words I'd like to use but I can't it it really irritates me that none of the talking heads talk about, like supporting an immune system. Nobody right. out there saying, I mean, "Oh, I mean, you know what so about eating an organic me. diet, or how about exactly. taking vitamin C, I'm or." I'm
1: so angry with them for not saying that. I can't tell you how angry I am. Because it's not, that
0: know? part. Isn't that hard? Having what about I mean, having yeah, a good, out good out
1: immune sunlight, system? Right? Can we talk Go about outside. that? Go ahead. Yeah, you know we should shout at each other, but that has just infuriated me that they, that they don't say anything in the media or in the government. Nobody's saying anything about just eating healthy, living healthy, getting sunlight exposure so you've got your vitamin D up. I mean, people with low vitamin D have a fourfold increased risk of dying from COVID-19. And, you know, also all the different, um, you know, they have all these um, cofactors, all these different uh, Chronic diseases that if you have, if you're obese, if you have diabetes, if you have a high blood pressure, you know, all these diseases that um, are associated with bad outcomes with COVID-19. And those diseases are all going up in our population exactly in step with the rise in glyphosate usage on crops, you know. So I think actually those diseases are an indicator of glyphosate poisoning and it's glyphosate. That's the reason why people are having a bad effect, a bad reaction to the to the virus. And it's really amazing when you look at the difference in the death rate among different countries. You know, look at the country level, look at Taiwan versus the United States. You know, I think Taiwan, last time I checked and I've been true for a long time, seven deaths in the entire country from COVID-19 in wow. Taiwan. You know, incredibly good record and uh Taiwan uses way less glyphosate than we do they don't allow gmos you know they're um then they have really healthy food i've i've been there for extended periods of time and um you know their food is fantastic and it's got a lot of fermented foods and everything's fresh vegetables you know lightly cooked um, excellent fats i mean it's just really really good food and um and they don't get sick with covid you know they don't die so it, it's and here we we just can't control this infection it just keeps going up and up i mean i guess it is Starting to turn the corner now. I hope it looks like it's starting to come down, which is hopeful. I think we're not going to get over this uh, this virus until we've got uh, everybody, you know, exposed. So those people who are are healthy, they don't have anything to worry about. The ones who have a healthy immune system, uh, the ones who don't, I mean, they should really get into the program of eating the organic diet and getting out in the sunlight, you know, and eating fermented foods. I mean, these are all easy things to do. The vitamin C. So e- eating foods that are rich in vitamin C and vitamin K2. And then getting out in the sunlight to get your vitamin D. Those three are really, really important. All studies have shown that a deficiency in any of those three is, um, is linked to poor outcomes with COVID-19. And the government knows, they should know this. It's, it's the published literature. You know, it's not like um, something that, that isn't known. And I don't know why they don't say it. It just, I just really boggles the mind that they they're only talking about social distancing and face masks and vaccines, you know, like that's the only solution. And yet you can compare us to countries like Taiwan where, you know, it's uh, a healthy living is just going to keep people from getting
0: sick. (laughs) I just had an image of the, the government mailing everybody a bottle of vitamin C. I just, <laughs> just like, I
1: here, know. let's just start there. Just take the three grams
0: a day. Maybe just three grams a day. Let's not, uh, you yeah. know, scare you. Um, just any number of things. And I, and I also think of uh, Dr. Paul Harch, M.D., and I think he's in Louisiana, who is one of the thought leaders on hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Mm-hmm. And he talks. He spoke about uh, when I, I've interviewed him a number of times. But he spoke about when we had the uh flew back in 1918 one of the things that they used then was a form of hyperbaric oxygen therapy and Mm -hmm. for new listeners hbo or hyperbaric oxygen therapy is pressurized high quality clean oxygen you put in the tank it's basically diving tanks Mm -hmm. but a more high-tech version a cleaner version and you go into a tank and you lay in this pressurized oxygen so that your tissues become oxygenated and you ha- it has just a myriad of results. I had interviewed his mentor years ago, who was the doc- uh, Dr. Neubauer, brought it to ICUs for stroke patients. Because a- the mm-hmm. sooner you get a stroke patient into an HBO tank, the faster they recover. And
1: That's so huge.
0: Dr. Harch was observing that the 1918 flu, they were using a kind of hyperbaric oxygen tank. I don't think they were using medical-grade oxygen, but they were, using- they were pressurizing oxygen, and people had a good recovery rate. Now Mm -hmm. he's trying to do research, and and he's been using HBO for decades,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: trying to get research to go, you know, if you you put people into an HBO tank instead of putting them on a ventilator, Mm
1: -hmm. they're not going to have a bronchial irritation
0: from the air blowing into the lung on a regular basis and drying out the mucosa. This is all my opinion. You actually get oxygen generated pressurized into the body help the mitochondria help people recur I mean it's all mind-blowing I don't have right. there's no question there I don't have that in the form of a question I'm sorry <laughs> right.
1: well I, I actually have some something to say about that because it's Please. quite interesting that um, what the virus does and I've been studying um, you know exactly the, the sequence of events that happens in these cases where things go go south and um, it's really quite fascinating because of the, the virus you know um, Launches this whole uh, cascade reaction with the, of the body. The body's immune system responds with this reaction that involves recruiting a whole bunch of uh, immune cells. You know, things like macrophages come into the lungs, and um, and then the blood becomes leaky, like the the, uh, the blood opens up and they, allowing those macrophages to get in, but also allowing water to get in. So the um, the blood sort of leaves into gets into the not the blood, but the water from the blood gets into the lung tissue, and even there are Enzymes that get activated that actually make water, and uh, to produce this, and then uh, they also make something called hyaluronic acid. There's an upregulation of a production of a, of a protein called hyaluronic acid, which actually traps water and makes gelled water. And so, it's really wild all the things that are going on in the lungs of these patients, and that you end up um, kind of it's almost like drowning. Right? People feel like they're they're drowning because they've got all this gelled water in the alveoli, which are those places that are supposed to, supposed to be sockets of air providing the oxygen to the lungs. So when you fill up those alveoli with gelled water, then you really have a, a oxygen deficit problem. And then that triggers another reaction that causes a, an enzyme called heme oxygenase to be made. And that is breaking down heme and turning it into bilivaridin, also making water. So are these things that are, these are, there are these enzymes that are reacting and pulling hydrogens out of molecules and turning them into water and that water is actually very special water it's water that I would call deuterium depleted water it's water that's low in deuterium because these enzymes are able to select for hydrogen over deuterium deuterium is heavy hydrogen and there's absolutely fascinating um, biology real around deuterium that I've been reading about over the past year it's so so interesting it turns out that the mitochondria hate deuterium deuterium is a natural heavy hydrogen um, atom it has an extra neutron which makes it twice as heavy as the hydrogen atom which is the tiniest atom on the planet you know hydrogen is very tiny most of our body is hydrogen we have uh, 99% of our molecules in our body or hi- uh, of our atoms in our body are hydrogen atoms really amazing um, and the hydrogen atoms um, then we have a, a number of deuterium atoms that is much smaller but still very large compared to even something like calcium so there's a lot of deuterium around the, 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 the hyaluronic acid makes the gelled water that traps deuterium. And then these enzymes that are invoked by the virus make deuterium depleted water. So you have this rich source of deuterium depleted water in the interstitial spaces of the lungs and the macrophages swarm in there and they're basically drinking that that water. There's a, something called macropinocytosis, which it means big drink um, cell, Yes, you know, so cellular big drink. So they, they sweep up that that deuterium-depleted water, and they deliver it to their mitochondria to make them healthy. So the problem, I think, is a a systemic problem with excess deuterium in the mitochondria that causes mitochondrial disease. So the mitochondria are not working well, um, and you can help to repair the mitochondria through this really elegant process that practically kills the patient because there's not enough oxygen getting supplied. And as long as your problem is fixable, you can actually restore the mitochondrial uh, health to these macrophages which then allows them to clear the virus so it's a whole bootstrapping method by which the virus is providing the reaction in the body that allows the macrophages to become healthy so that they can clear the virus and so if all goes well you have this sort of panic phase of not being able to breathe and feeling like you're not getting enough air but in the end you fix the macrophages you clear the virus and then you heal and what you've done is, is you've strengthened your innate immune system when you're done. Uh, the problem is that we're so sick that it, it just goes way too far and we end up killing ourselves with this virus because our, our macrophages are so sick that um, the, the virus's capacity is not strong enough to actually carry, off, carry out the task sufficiently well to not accidentally kill the patient at the same time.
0: And in, in that... Case, do you think that if the person if the patient was getting hyperbaric oxygen therapy that would help them stay oxygenated while the body went through that process
1: yeah I think if they are in a situation where this virus has caused such an intense reaction that they can't get enough oxygen that they should make it easier for oxygen access access to keep them alive if they're able to push through that enough to give them just enough extra oxygen to get through it I think it would be beneficial for those extreme patients
0: right, and so back to total toxic load, do you, if a person had a good immune system to begin with, good blood sugars, good solid diet, by, you know vitamin senior foods or in fermented foods and all that, do you think we can resi- we can get this and? come out the other end actually slightly stronger from passing through having that illness and having the the body's own antibodies build up to be resist, further resistant to that
1: yeah I mean it's an interesting question to ask and I don't know the answer of course I can only guess but I do believe that um, if you are infected with this virus and you are healthy you may end up with a, uh, a latent version of the virus just hanging around in, in your cells and And it will only come into play under conditions where you're being poisoned. So I think that I'm imagining that this virus will be able to settle into basically it, it's sort of populating the entire you know human humanity, all of humanity pop being populated by this virus right now. And those people who don't have symptoms, they might end up with um, the virus kind of in very small numbers just kind of being sitting there waiting for a possible time when they're needed. and then the virus can actually then you know, cause what might be called a flare up, where um, and maybe it would be even so slight you wouldn't notice it, but they would actually be able to keep those mitochondria keep the mitochondria of the macrophages happy by these kind of very low level activities of the sort I just described, so low level you don't really feel sick, um, that but the macrophages then have an opportunity to to maintain healthy uh, mitochondria in despite being exposed periodically to low levels of poison. So the whole thing is that, the ones who are being exposed to high levels of poison chronically, their, their macrophages are so sick they can't really take advantage of the situation without you know, it becoming so extreme that the patient dies. So there's a, there's a game to be played. I have to say there's a very interesting uh, observation that I made about Africa. You probably know that Africa has a much, much lower rates of COVID problems than we do here in the United States. In fact, the countries that are hit, hit it, being hit the hardest by COVID are pretty much countries that use a lot of glyphosate. You've got Brazil, Brazil's a very heavy user of glyphosate. And uh, South Africa is the one that uses the most by far in all of Africa and they have the worst uh outbreak of COVID-19 in Africa. And um and then if US of course and Canada and then UK, UK is uses a lot of glyphosate. They have a very uh, overrun with uh COVID-19. And most of Europe is in trouble and they use a lot of glyphosate even though they're mostly GMO non-GMO. They mostly don't allow GMOs but they uh, but they still use a lot of glyphosate. And so I think the countries that are using a lot of glyphosate are the ones that are having a hard time, struggling, really struggling with COVID-19. I really think it's a major player in in, um, in controlling uh, the degree to which the country is susceptible. Because once you've got a person who has a weak immune system, I mean, actually there was an amazing paper that I, I read about a case study of a person in the UK who had cancer. He had cancer, he was being treated with a... Um, Immune suppressing drugs. So when you've got cancer, you've got immune suppressing drugs. You've got a weak immune system for sure. And this person got sick with COVID-19 under this circumstance in the hospital. And they, they gave him uh, remdesivir. You know, that's sort of a, a drug that they found is effective. And then they gave him two, two rounds of plasma from uh, people who had recovered from COVID-19 and they were giving them antibodies that those people had produced against the, so they were feeding this guy antibodies against the virus, trying to get the virus, you know, to get controlled. And that didn't have, you know, they kept him alive for 101 days in the hospital and the entire time he was shedding. So they had him in an isolation room with, you know, they set up this air flow. So his, his room where he wasn't, they were trying to keep his spread within his room and really keeping him in isolation. 101 days he was he was shedding the virus and and potentially spreading it and and by the end of that 101 days when he died they looked at the virus they analyzed the virus that he was carrying and by that point it already mutated to like they were like over a dozen different mutations in the virus particularly in that spike protein mutations in the spike protein um that led to a very different version of the virus by that time and they hypothesized the authors hypothesized that um that he was um the virus was mutating in response to the antibodies and managed to weasel its way out of the end. so the ones that were surviving, this is survival of the fittest, the versions of the virus that were surviving were the ones that were not couldn't be trapped by that antibody, uh, by the antibodies. And so this kind of situation, when you have somebody who has a weak immune system who gets the virus and then is delivered antibodies from other people, then that virus is their their virus in their body is going to learn how to get around those antibodies and become a resistant to the antibodies. And I think this is what's going to happen with the vaccine, unfortunately, is that uh, we're already seeing like this new strain from the UK. There's one from South Africa. There's one in Brazil. I mean, these are all countries that are heavy users of glyphosate, and they've all got these new strains of the virus. That are, uh, have had many, many different mutations, not just a couple, in the spike protein, um, allowing it to uh, reshape itself so that it doesn't respond to the antibodies uh, that are that are normally produced to the to the original version of the virus. And so, um, and so the um, when you expose people to the, uh, the to the vaccine, it's stuck in that in that version that is the old version of the virus, and you're going to develop antibodies to the wrong thing, and then they won't work with the virus that's out there in the world. So when you have even just one person who has a weak immune system, who catches COVID, and then the, the virus just multiplies like crazy in their body, and then they're spreading it to everybody they come in contact with, when you have people like that in your, in your community, it's very, very hard to contain that virus. It's much, much worse. I mean, just face masks, is not going to be enough in that situation. You know, whereas if you have people who immediately they get the virus, it goes away. The virus can't spread, so it really makes a huge difference when you have a bunch of people in your community that have a weak immune system. Makes a huge difference in the degree to which the virus spreads. And and these these people who wrote about this case, they suspected that the um, that this the strain that showed up in the UK with all these mutations was a consequence of another person like that. They were suspecting, they were they were predicting that that could be the case. You know, it's a hypothesis. Um, but that's you know, that's really quite disturbing, you know, to think about.
0: And I want to jump back in time to when I was a kid. We got meedle, measles. And,
1: mm-hmm. and I got measles I was too. I
0: was of the generation where, when you heard that one of your family friends had measles, you went over and like rubbed up against them so you could get measles too.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: that that was the that was the idea is mm-hmm. that we all got measles together. We all had a couple of weeks off. We all thought, yay, we're on vacation. We have measles. And it was, was bad. It was annoying. We had, but it wasn't, we had my it wasn't whole family. We was eight
1: kids in, in my family, and we all, five of us got it at the same time, the five oldest kids. We all got the measles at the same time. I remember playing a lot of Monopoly games. We had a great time. I had a few bumps on my belly, but I didn't even feel sick. You know, I was fine. Exactly. It was kind and of great to have
0: a two-week vacation from school. It was a thrill. is one of the variables – from from everything that I've we've talked about and we you, you and I have talked before numerous times about glyphosate is one of the possible variables that we have such a toxic load now in the environment glyphosate and everything else that's happening that that was different when we were kids that we didn't have glyphosate oh, yeah. I mean is that one yeah. of the considerations or things, call that? yeah polio
1: polio as you probably know uh, there are many people who think polio was really caused by the uh, DDT that the that the par- paralytic polio the virus was not a, it didn't cause paralysis before DDT and then it disappeared after DDT was banned the the par- it disappeared in timing with the vaccine so they could give the vaccine credit but it was already disappearing as they were phasing out DDT the virus was uh the polio was was disappearing you know the inf- the uh, the paralysis um and so people have said that um that the vaccine got credit for what was really a DDT story, that it was, it was the banning of DDT that actually was what solved the paralytic polio problem. And, uh, you know, they just basically have, they have a way of saying the vaccine is doing all the good stuff. And then when somebody dies right after they get a vaccine, it's just coincidental, you know, (laughs) it's just kind of interesting how things get spun different ways, depending upon the the messaging and what you want people to believe talk about africa please very interesting yeah, with please. africa and i got i got off on a tangent there but um there uh there's a uh, you know tuberculosis is a is a problem all over the world but it's certain countries where it's much worse than certain other countries and um uh, and it's a major it's a major infective disease that kills i mean it's 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 no it's no picnic um but it turns out in africa eighty percent of the people in africa actually have harbor the tri- the the um, the, the, b- the b- bacterium that causes tuberculosis and uh, mycobacterium tuberculosis it's called and that uh, 80% of people have it but most of those people don't experience any symptoms so this is again the case if you've got a strong immune system you can just carry this bacterium and it's not going to cause you any harm and in fact I think that bacterium is protective against COVID-19 because I found uh, a map a color map color coded map of, of Africa showing you know colors that would have uh, high versus low levels of uh, tuberculosis in those different countries. And then another map of Africa showing high versus low death rates from COVID-19. And you look at those two maps side by side and you can see their mirror image of each other. The places where tuberculosis is endemic had low COVID and places where tuberculosis was low had high COVID. It was an exact mirror image. It was so fascinating, which makes me think that the tuberculosis infection Latent tuberculosis infection sits there in the lungs and produces um, useful stuff that keeps the lungs, uh, keeps the macrophages healthy by supplying this whole process of keeping them, their, their mitochondria healthy um, by producing uh, certain um, proteins or different kinds of um, products from those bacteria that are, uh, that are healthy, that are pr- uh, promoting health. Um, and so when you have that infection with the bacteria, it keeps your uh, your immune cells healthy, and therefore you are resistant to COVID-19. So in other words, uh, and in fact, you know, it's been shown with diseases like measles and mumps. There's studies that are amazing, that have shown that if people who caught measles, natural measles at, uh, in childhood, have remarkable protection against things like heart disease and, and, and cancer later in life. You know, it's, um, it's, a, protect, it's a protection that lasts life, la, la, lifelong lifelong protection from some of these chronic diseases as a consequence of catching the measles as a child or the mumps so we really don't understand viruses but i think they're doing something most of the time they're doing something good and useful and powerful and then it's just that every once in a while we get into a situation usually because of too much toxic chemical exposure where they cause a a huge amount of trouble you know it's really the chemicals that are the problem not the virus
0: Well and one of my other, I'll call it a pet peeve, is that I'm a fan of fever. Fever is an Mm -hmm. indicator. Fever has function in the body. And Mm -hmm. we got into this technological revolution where fever was suddenly the enemy. Like, Mm -hmm. oh my god, you have a fever, take aspirin, quick, stop it.
1: And yes, fever
0: can be dangerous, but it has function. It's a it's a built in thing that the body does to try and cook things off in a certain very crude way. You'll have a much better way of saying it. But would you talk about fever a little bit?
1: I will because I found something really, really fascinating. I found an article about viruses and deuterium. And deuterium has been my thing lately, so I've really been studying deuterium. But it's very interesting because viruses of course respond to fever fever it's right at that uh, temperature threshold between normal temperature and fever that the viruses start to fall apart like the fever can actually break the viruses but, you know are, as you know rna is very unstable and so um these these viruses become susceptible to a high temperature it can cause them to uh, it basically kills them and and it turns out that if they've got enough deuterium in the virus the virus actually traps deuterium and if it has enough deuterium, it becomes uh, resistant to fever. It, it can it can stay, um, it doesn't fall apart until a higher temperature, so it can be resistant to fever, which I find really, really fascinating because then the virus is part of the task of uh, pulling the deuterium out of the water. So you have that beautiful deuterium-depleted water that's left over. The virus is sucking up the deuterium, and the hyaluronic acid is sucking up the deuterium into the gelled water that's in those alveoli, and that's leaving behind deuterium-depleted water in the, um, in the lungs, in the, in the interstitial spaces where the mac- macrophages come in and, and drink that water and, and fix their mitochondria. So I think that's really, really fascinating. Um, it's, a, it's an idea that, of what, what to explain why, why the virus does what it does in the lungs. And, and um, so just <laughs> interesting biology, in my opinion. But I was really amazed to see that these uh, viruses are actually stabilized, their RNA is stabilized by deuterium.
0: Wow, wow, and and it back, it's back to, I'm surprised we're coming around the bend to the end of the show, but really I, I want to go back to the thing, we've talked about glyphosate, that's one of the toxins, I was, I'm was i old enough that as a kid, as we were driving through Salinas Valley to visit my grandparents up in what is now the Silicon Valley, I would stick my head out of the window because it was cool to get dusted with moisture from the crop duster, and it wasn't mm. until decades later that I realized, oh, that was probably DDT, mm. because it was yeah. a cool thing to drive through the Salinas Valley and see the crop dusters oh, literally wow. out there spraying spray. And it was of the time zone when it would have been DDT. Right. And yeah. and so we, we seem to be going out of our way. I mean, our usage – I don't know. I wasn't going to go here, but could you – is there any reason why – I mean, I, I read something recently where Mexico is now going to stop using glyphosate.
1: I know. I'm why, so glad to did that are, because that's very close to home.
0: Right. And, and why do we – is it just money that the United States just can't give it up? It's like a bad drug.
1: I know, know. we we have become so dependent on glyphosate and we have all these GMO crops and and also we're spraying the non-GMO crops right before harvest like wheat and oats. I mean, and all the uh, chickpeas and garbanzo beans, they're all they're all highly contaminated with glyphosate. Uh, The government really wants to believe what the industry is telling them that this is a wonderful herbicide. It's practically non-toxic to humans, but it kills all all plants except those that have been engineered to resist it. Wonderful, wonderful herbicide, you know, what's not to love about it? And there's no reason why we shouldn't just keep on doing it. It's making our food very cheap, you know um and of course it it's it's doing a lot of bad things. it's destroying the the microbes in the soil. And so it's causing our, our, um, a lot of problems with the plants become more re- less resistant to fungus and less resist- resistant to um, a, you know disease of any sort. Actually, water they, they they get they suffer drought more easily. I mean, it really weakens the plants. The glyphosate does even the ones that are GMOs they get weakened by the glyphosate. So you have a um, and, and of course the, they're also the weeds are developing resistance to glyphosate, which is one of the reasons why the, the usage keeps going up. They have to. Hit it harder with with more glyphosate to kill the weed, as the weeds evolve to be resistant. And so uh, it's almost become to the point now where glyphosate's not really worth it anymore. They've started introducing these other chemicals like you know that 2,4-D is coming back and dicamba and um, glufosinate yeah. These are all also very toxic chemicals that are being added you know to the glyphosate because the glyphosate alone is not good enough to kill the weeds anymore. It's just going to be Further nightmare with different kinds of diseases we're going to get from these other chemicals that are now becoming part of our food supply. It's a it's a hopeless, um, endless failure that we're going to see in the in the years to come. We're just going to get sicker and sicker, and uh, we have to just simply wake up and realize we can't keep doing it this way. I really love the young folks who've decided they're going to go buy a plot of land, grow, have a small organic farm. I mean, that's that's the answer, the solution. For a healthy future, there's no other solution, in my opinion, other than to take the young people back to the farm, go back to having the small organic that are producing all kinds of different you know, vegetables and fruits and whatnot, and um, get rid of these mega farms that are based on uh, chemical based agriculture. It's just not working. We have to recognize that, that fact. And then the government needs to take the lead in making that happen. Um, I don't know what it's going to take to get them to realize that. But, you know, this this virus is probably going to accelerate their I hope it's going to cause people to be more aware of the need to do this because of the virus. Uh, that might be a silver lining.
0: <clears throat> that would be... Uh, I put this in quotes because it sounds spooky for me to say, that would be great if this is, if, if the, you know, if that the hashtag thanks COVID, if this creates, I <laughs> I'm not saying it justifies it in any way. It's a horrible situation. However, if it gets us to have uh, pay attention to, as you talk about plants as being an old school herbalist and knowing people who've been growing permaculture, biodynamic, all those magic words now that mm-hmm. really was just organic farming for decades. Yes. Growing plants where they're getting them tested and then they find out they have glyphosate in it And they've never had glyphosate on their land. Yeah,
1: that's and it's because it's in the
0: water table I live in a part of right. California in Sonoma County where it's a huge wine industry and I know people yes. vineyards that have been growing de- have been growing permaculture biodynamic wine for yeah. Decades and now their wines are testing and they're having traces of glyphosate. They've right. never applied glyphosate anywhere on their land yeah, acres. That's so frustrating and it's because it's leaching into the water table and it's showing right. up in breast milk and it's everywhere it's just right. at some point it seems like we have to go, "Wow, maybe that's not good I <laughs> you and I have talked <laughs> about it enough, but I yeah. don't know I don't know
1: I don't um, know how the government can think that it's not causing trouble when you see especially those stunning correlations you know Nancy Swanson's a friend of mine, she did that paper where she had like 30 graphs and all these diseases going up exactly in step with glyphosate and they just dismiss it and say, oh, correlation doesn't mean causation. And that's the end of that. I mean, it's just amazing to me that they can't see that if there's that kind of correlation with all those diseases, maybe there's causation, you know, maybe there's causation. Maybe.
0: Just maybe. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm going to stop there because we could go on for any number of hours. It was really great. Thank you so much. Spooky Thank you. and great. Always my favorite. I know. I hope there
1: will be a silver lining and will come out of this in some kind of better shape than we are right now. But
0: I'm really I am fantasizing the government sending out everybody a bottle of vitamin C. Let's just start there. I'm like, oh wow, <laughs> let's try that. <laughs> no harm, no foul. All right. Thank you so much, Stephanie. That was great. Thank you. And everybody have a great rest of the weekend and we'll see you next week. Bye bye. <laughs>